Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today I'm going to spend some time talking about crises that can happen in the operating room. So real kind of emergencies in the OR and how to respond. Now, this is going to be really useful for obviously anyone who is working in an operating room because these things can happen. They don't happen that often, but when they do happen, you want to be able to respond quickly. You don't want to freeze up. You don't want to be sitting there kind of deer in the headlights. You want to have already thought through in your head what you can do and what you should do. And then also, they're going to be useful for anyone studying for any kind of oral board exams, because these are the kind of things that are going to come up on an exam like that. Now, there's two really fantastic resources out there that I highly recommend you take a look at. A lot of what I'll talk about today is included in these resources, though I won't certainly cover everything that they do. But take a look. There's a set of checklists for OR crises put out by the Stanford Anesthesia Cognitive Aid Group. Really well done. You can actually print it out and carry it with you if you want, or you can download it onto your smartphone. And that is available. Just Google OR Crises Checklist Stanford, and you'll find it. And then the other is from Ariadne Labs, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Harvard School of Public Health. And they have a joint venture, uh, a similar, shorter, but also very useful set of checklists for OR crises. And you can get that just by Googling OR crises, uh, Harvard, or the Brigham uh, checklists. So both really useful. Check them out. Finally, before we get started, I will ask you if you are a fan of the podcast, please take a moment and go to iTunes, find the podcast there, leave both a comment and a rating. It's really important to help others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to do that. All right, let's get started. Let's start by talking about cardiac arrest. Obviously, if your patient has a cardiac arrest intraoperatively, it's a pretty major crisis, and you want to have thought through how you're going to react. So this is going to be very similar to any kind of code training you've had for how to respond to a cardiac arrest on the floor, in the ICU, or anywhere else. Remember, there are various kinds of cardiac arrest. So you can have asystole, 
you can have a PEA arrest or you can have VFib or VTAC, and those are going to be treated differently. So we're going to look at them just as ACLS does from first a PEA and asystole, and those are treated one way, and then a VFib and VTAC treated another way, and that's because VFib and VTAC are shockable rhythms. So if you notice that your EKG tracing has become a flat line, that would be worrisome for asystole. Of course, you would want to check. You'd know it's possible that your EKG uh, is malfunctioning, but if you don't have a pulse, if you have an A-line and it's flat, then you really are, are going to be very worried here. And so you're going to feel for a pulse. If there's no pulse and a flatline EKG, then you've got asystole. If there's no pulse and there is activity on the EKG that is not V-fib or V-tac, then you've got PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity. So either of those, asystole or PEA, the first thing you want to do is start chest compressions right away. Then you want to make sure, call for help. Don't forget, you need help. You're going to need a lot of people. Call for help, right? Even if you're not 100% sure or you're a little confused, never hurts to call for help. Just do it. Call for help. You want to call for a code cart. There should be one close by in the sterile core or nearby. And then, of course, you want to let the surgical team know that something bad is happening. Now, you're going to forget about any worry about intraoperative awareness here. You've got a much bigger crisis on your hands, so you're going to turn off any anesthetic. If you're running a propofol drip, turn it off. If you've got volatile anesthetic on, turn it off. Make sure you're ventilating with 100% oxygen. Turn up your flows. Make sure you're not overventilating. You don't want to be causing a decreased venous return. So 10 breaths a minute, that's all you need. Turn your ventilator to that. Obviously, make sure your ventilator is working and you are actually ventilating the patient. And, of course, this whole time you're doing chest compressions. You want to do at least 100 per minute, not more than 120, at least 2 inches deep, and allow complete chest recoil. Make sure you don't stop the chest compressions except for a shock, which we'll talk about in a minute, if it's a V-fib or VTAC arrest. And you want to rotate compressors every 2 minutes so that people can get really high-quality compressions without getting too tired. You should, of course, have IV access. If you're in the operating room with a patient, make sure your IV access is working. If it's not, get new access. And if you can't get a vein, then put an intraosseous uh, needle in. And you're going to push epinephrine one milligram every three to five minutes. Now, there is some controversy over whether that dose is correct, and but it's certainly at the moment is part of the ACLS algorithm. And until there's enough preponderance of the evidence to change that, it's still what we're going to recommend. So you give one milligram every three to five minutes IV push of epinephrine. If there is a, at any point, there becomes a shockable rhythm. So if you see V-fib or V-tac, then you'll go and deliver a shock once you've got the pads on the patient. But we'll talk about V-fib and V-tac in a second. And, of course, you can... Think about other possibilities. If you have an ECMO team in-house, you might want to call them, get them in there to evaluate the patient, especially if you think whatever's causing this problem might be reversible. And then if you have the ability to put in a TEE or even to get an ultrasound and do a TTE, it might give you some more information about what's going on. Really important to establish that there's a code happening, that you or whoever's going to be the team leader is the team leader, and you want everyone to be calm, and you want to assign jobs so someone should be keeping time, someone should be delivering meds. If that's if you're the one running the code, it should be somebody else. By this time, you're going to have a room full of people, so you'll have plenty of people to, to designate to do this stuff. You can send someone to get a TEE or a TTE, and then you want to be thinking about possible causes. So what could lead to an intra-op cardiac arrest. 
Most common things are hemorrhage. So obviously your surgeons can tell you, did they lose a lot of blood all of a sudden? Uh, or effective loss of circulation. So were they leaning on the IVC or did there was something get caught in a retractor? Anesthetic overdose. So did you accidentally turn the uh, volatile anesthetic all the way on when you were trying to turn it off? Did you turn it up because the patient was light and you forgot and left it up? Did you give something by accident that you didn't realize you were giving? It's possible for a patient to, have, to get septic intraop, but it'd be really unusual for that to cause cardiac arrest unless they were septic coming in. It is possible to cause a, lo- a loss of circulating, uh, effective circulating volume through auto-peep. So if you have a patient who has bad COPD, bad obstructive lung disease, and you were ventilating them too quickly and they didn't have time to exhale, you can build up so much pressure in the chest that you actually completely impede venous return. They have no venous return and therefore they have a cardiac arrest. So that's possible, and if that's the case, you want to just let them exhale. Unhook them from the circuit and let them exhale. Of course, anaphylaxis is a possibility and could cause severe hypotension, which, if not corrected, could lead to cardiac arrest. You can look for other signs of anaphylaxis, things like swollen mucous membranes or rash. Uh, You can listen for bronchospasm. Medication error, we kind of already covered in anesthetic overdose. So did you think you were giving phenylephrine, but you accidentally gave nitroglycerin to a hypotensive patient? That would be bad. If you have done any kind of neuraxial blockade, if you did a spinal, you could have a high spinal that could lead to a cardiac arrest. If you injected for a nerve block bupivacaine around a nerve and it got into a vein, it could cause cardiac arrest. Uh, So you want to think about that if you've done that kind of a procedure. Could there be a pneumothorax? Is there any reason to think that? Does the patient have bad lung disease and may have developed a pneumothorax just from the positive pressure? Did you place a central line preoperatively and you may have caused a pneumothorax? Could there be excessive vagal stimulation like during a cataract surgery or any kind of like a strabismus surgery if the surgeons are pressing on the eyeball and activating the oculocardiac reflex? Patients can get extremely bradycardic and even arrest. And then could there be a pulmonary embolus? So is there an air embolus, a a clot, like a true pulmonary embolus, uh, or something if it's an OB case like an amniotic fluid embolus, could there be something like that going on? So those are the most common causes of an intraoperative uh, cardiac arrest, and you want to be thinking about those while you're going through the ACLS algorithm. So if you think hemorrhage might have played a role or hypovolemia might have played a role, obviously give a rapid IV bolus. Get blood as soon as you can and start giving it. If you think hypoxemia may have played a role, turn up the oxygen as high as it can go. Make sure you're ventilating. uh, Suction out your ET tube if you have to. If you think you might be dealing with a pneumothorax, obviously listen to the lungs. If you don't have lung sounds on one side, you can do a needle thoracostomy and try to relieve that pressure. If you think that the patient may have had a PE, any kind of thrombus, if it's uh, in the lung, try to get your hands on an echo. Take a look at the RV. If it's massively dilated and not functional, you may want to think about TPA. Even though you're in the middle of a surgery, that may be the only thing that can save the patient, or ECMO. If, it's a, if you think it may be a thrombus in a coronary artery, again, you can take a look at the heart function with an echo and decide if you need to go emergently to the cath lab if that's possible. If you think you committed a uh, medication error, if you gave something wrong, try to identify what it was and figure out if there's a way to counteract it. If you think you might be in cardiac tamponade, an echo will help you with that too, and of course you can drain that. Think about the other H's and T's, so we've covered some of them, but other ones include 
um, hypothermia, so hypothermia, hyperthermia. In this case, like malignant hyperthermia, if you think that could be going on, you want to give dantrolene. Hypothermia, obviously you're going to warm your patient. Hyperkalemia, calcium, insulin, and dextrose. Hypoglycemia, obviously you're going to give dextrose. If you think it's a profound acidosis that might be leading to this, a little harder. If it's really, uh, it's unlikely that a pure, just an acidosis would be causing a cardiac arrest. You really want to figure out what else is going on. Some people would tell you to give bicarb, a little controversial, a lot controversial. But if you really, if you get an ABG and the pH is 6, 7, I think in that case, you know, giving bicarb is probably worth a shot. But you really want to know what's going on. Why is the pH 6, 7? Bicarb in and of itself may actually make things worse. Hypocalcemia, obviously you can give calcium. So there's a lot of things that you want to keep in mind to treat, but you'll have a lot of help in the room, people to help you thinking about these things. And you want to really ask yourself, what do I know about this patient and what has happened in this case that might be leading to this? For example, if it's a patient with known end-stage renal disease, hyperkalemia is going to be a lot more, pos- a lot more likely. If it's a cancer patient with known DVTs, a PE is going to be much more likely. If it's somebody with known clotting disorder who is off their anticoagulation for the surgery, PE is going to be much more likely. If the surgeon was operating in a field with open vessels and bleeding and the area that they were operating on was above the heart, think about an air embolus. So you have to think about the situation and what's going on. And you're going to keep giving epinephrine every three to five minutes and investigating these things and then treating what you find. All right, now if it's VFib or VTAC, either if it starts off that way or if at any point it converts from asystole or PEA to VFib or VTAC, pulseless VFib or VTAC, then you're going to do very similar things, but you're going to defibrillate. So you're going to use get that code card, get that defibrillator on the patient, and you're going to use, these days most defibrillators are biphasic, and you're going to go as high as it'll go, which is usually 200, and you're going to use 200 joules biphasic, and you're going to shock. As soon as the shock is delivered, you're going to then start CPR again. You're not going to wait. You're not going to do a pulse check immediately. You're going to do CPR for two minutes and then do a pulse check. Shock again if there's still not a pulse, and at the same time, you're going to be giving that epinephrine every three to five minutes. The other difference between PEA, asystole, and VFib, VTAC, is that you're going to also think about giving antiarrhythmic. So usually we think 300 of amiodarone pushed, in theory, you could also think about lidocaine, but we use that less commonly. And if for any reason you think that you have torsade that looks like your morphology, or if it's a patient you knew had long QT, then you're going to give magnesium 2 grams IV as well. You're going to think about the same possible causes, and you're going to give a shock every two minutes and that epinephrine every three to five minutes uh, as long as the patient is still pulseless. You can go through those same list of causes that we already talked about for asystole and PEA. The one thing I didn't mention is that if you think it might be local anesthetic toxicity, if you think you may have given bupivacaine into a vein, then you would want to think about using intralipid uh, as a treatment for that. So the key to these, to a cardiac arrest anywhere, but including in the OR, is that you need to do two things. You need to be treating, and the treatment is, is very a very simple algorithm. So in the if it's VFIV, VTAC, it's epinephrine, amiodarone, and then uh, shocks. You want to do those three things, 
And then the amiodarone is only given one time at 300 milligrams. You can repeat it one more time at 150 milligrams. The epinephrine, you keep giving every three to five minutes, one milligram, and then the shocks every two minutes. So you're going to do that. That's, that's part one is treating the immediate arrest. And then part two is trying to figure out why this patient arrested and trying to treat the underlying cause. You're doing those two things at the same time. Other rhythm-related emergencies that can happen in the OR, one would be severe bradycardia, unstable bradycardia. So your patient brady's down low enough that they are unstable, meaning their blood pressure is falling and you're worried about it. So similar to what we talked about before, you're going to increase your O2. You're going to turn down or maybe even off your anesthetics, depending on how hypotensive they are. You're going to make sure that you look at your monitors and that everything else is okay. You're ventilating, you're oxygenating. You can give atropine you don't want to give less than half a milligram, but you can give half a milligram or up to a milligram, and you can repeat that up to three times or up to three milligrams total. You can also, and probably in many ways, I think a better uh, option is to give epinephrine. So you can give a push of usually 10 to 20 mics. Uh, you should, I always tell my residents, have a bag of what we call baby epi in, the, in your drawer. That's 10 mics per ml. So have that ready in a syringe with it so you can push 10, 20, 30 mics. Uh, you can also use dopamine, but probably not as good of a, of a medication. If that's what you've got, though, certainly use it. And then get those pacer pads. Call for help. Call for the code card. Get those pacer pads on the patient and then transcutaneously pace them. If for some reason you can't, that's not working, you're going to use the medications while you try as fast as you can to get a transvenous pacer in. But that's quite a process if you don't already have a cortisone. And really, you, you're going to want to try to figure this out with either transcutaneous pacing or with your medications. With any of these crises, if you don't already have an A-line in, have somebody start doing that while you're managing the code. Again, remember, you don't want to be diving down into any one procedure. You're going to have a room full of people as soon as you call for help, and so you want to assign someone to do that. If you're in a private practice and you are the only one there, the only physician at least, then you may end up having to do some of this stuff yourself. But if you're in a position where you've got multiple providers, they don't have to be anesthesiologists. They could be surgeons. Uh, nurses can do IVs. You can get a lot of people and a lot of help. So start assigning tasks. If you don't have good access for uh, venous meds, get that done. If you don't have an A-line, get that done. And start uh, sending labs as well as soon as you get those lines in so you can start gaining more information about what's going on. You can also have tachycardia as a problem. So SVT, now sinus tach and SVT are different. And you're going to be more suspicious that it's SVT if it's greater than 150 beats per minute. If it is sudden in onset, so it, your rate jumps from something like 80 all the way to 150 right at once and not, doesn't gradually creep up, it's going to make you worry about SVT. If it's stable SVT, meaning the blood pressure is fine, you've got time. You can get a full 12 lead. You can think about what might be going on. You can get, uh, make sure you have good access. You can even think about getting a consult, like from cardiology. And if you think it's, if it's regular and narrow complex, so you think this is truly SVT, you can push adenosine, 6 milligrams, and if that doesn't work, 12 milligrams, and you really want to flush that through uh, really quickly, chase it with a, a big 20cc syringe to try to get it to the heart because the half-life is about 5 seconds and it doesn't last very long. If it doesn't get to the heart, it won't work. You don't want to use adenosine in somebody with uh, bad asthma or Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. But in the absence of those things, you can uh, use adenosine to try to uh, break the SVT. The other things you can do if it either doesn't work or if you want to try to just rate control is to use Esmolol as a great drug in the OR to try to either break it or slow it down.
if it's not SVT, it's irregular or wide complex tachycardia, but with a pulse and stable, then you want to think about giving amiodarone. But in this case, you're not going to push 300. You're going to give 150 slowly over about 10 minutes, and then you can start an infusion at a milligram per minute. So that would be how you would approach it if it's not clearly regular SVT that you can you can give adenosine or esmolol. But if you're not sure whether it might be ventricular, either because it's wide complex or irregular, then you can use amiodarone. Remember, if at any point the patient loses a pulse, you're going to go ahead if it's VTAC or VFib and shock, or if it's asystole or PEA, give epinephrine and in both of those cases, obviously, do chest compressions. And then the final one that we'll talk about in terms of rhythm disorders would be if the patient is tachycardic and unstable. And so they're tachycardic and they're hypotensive. And we're going to define that in the operating room since obviously they can't be telling you they have chest pain or shortness of breath, but they are unstable tachycardia because they also have hypotension. And in that case, that's when you're going to do synchronized cardioversion. So you are going to put your pacer pads on. You're going to turn it to synchronized, and you'll see a little dot come, a little dot or a little line usually come over each QRS complex, and it'll say synced somewhere on your screen. You really want to make sure that, that it is indeed synced. And then depending on what you think is going on, if it's narrow, complex, and regular, you can start around 50 to 100 joules. If it's narrow, complex, and irregular, you think it might be a rapid AFib, then you're going to want to go a little higher, at least 120, maybe all the way to 200 joules. Uh, if it's wide, complex, and regular, maybe 100 joules. And if it's wide, complex, and irregular and unstable, then you probably, if it's irregular and wide, complex, you may be looking at actually unstable VTAC, in which case it's not unstable tachycardia, it's ventricular tachycardia, and you probably just want to do unsynchronized cardioversion for that. If your first attempt at synchronized cardioversion for unstable tachycardia with a pulse doesn't work, then you can turn up the joules if you were using a lower uh, joules and start again. Um, you can also give things like magnesium and amiodarone at the same time that you're preparing to shock. All right, another common OR crisis that does not involve cardiac arrest, or at least doesn't start that way, would be anaphylaxis. So you could suspect anaphylaxis uh, if your patient develops hypoxemia, a rash, hypotension, tachycardia, bronchospasm, increased peak inspiratory pressures, uh, airway swelling, etc. So the most common, this gets asked all the time on tests, the most common uh, agent that is responsible for anaphylaxis these days is actually muscular blocker, neuromuscular blockers like rocuronium. Antibiotics are another common cause, but not as common. So that's a frequent thing people get wrong is they say antibiotics are the most common cause. So if you suspect anaphylaxis, again, think about calling for help. Think about calling for a code card because this can progress to uh, even a cardiac arrest if the hypotension gets bad enough. And then, obviously, let your surgeon know if at any point they lose their pulse, you're going to go to the things we just talked about in terms of uh, cardiac arrest, starting CPR, and giving those meds. But in the meantime, you want to look at your monitors, make sure everything else is stable, make sure that you're ventilating, make sure that you have your patients not desaturating, and think about other things that might be going on. So other things that can cause some of these symptoms, things like a pulmonary embolus or an MI or a pneumothorax, 
uh, if it's hypotension that you're mostly worried about, obviously hemorrhage um, and anesthetic overdose, so you want to think about other things. But if you've got that constellation of a, ra- a new sudden rash and bronchospasm and hypotension and tachycardia, you really want to think hard about anaphylaxis. And so you're going to, if there's anything you're giving, like if you have a neuromuscular blocker drip going on, you want to stop that, stop anything that you think might be contributing, turn off your anesthetics. If, if hypotension is a severe problem, give 100% oxygen, give epinephrine. So epinephrine is really the key, and you have IV access, so what you can do is give somewhere around 10 to 100 mics IV, start low and go high if you need to, uh, every two minutes until you start to see improvement. Now, usually you are not going to need to give code doses unless, of course, they end up going all the way to a full cardiac arrest. So you don't want to push a milligram of epinephrine in this case to start. Start low with 10 to 20 mics and then increase as needed. You can also start an epinephrine infusion. If you don't already have an airway, an endotracheal tube in place, so if you were using an LMA or if it was a, a patient who was breathing on their own with a spinal you want to think really hard about intubating if you really think this is anaphylaxis and if you see any development of angioedema because you could lose that airway quickly. So think about intubating. You can, in addition to giving that epinephrine, you can give albuterol for bronchospasm. You can give an H1 blocker like diphenhydramine and an H2 blocker like ranitidine, and you can also give steroids. You can also draw, this is not something to, to put anything else aside for, but when you, if everything gets under control and the patient is stable, you can actually draw a triptase level, which when it comes back can help you figure out and help the patient know if this was actually an allergic reaction, if it was actually uh, anaphylaxis to something, in which case they may be able to try to identify what it is and then avoid it in the future. Even if the patient gets better, anaphylaxis can recur for up to 24 hours after they recover, so you need to keep them in the hospital and watch them really closely in an ICU or really highly monitored setting. All right, let's move on to bronchospasm. So how would you know if your patient was having bronchospasm? So the first thing you would probably notice is increased peak airway pressures. You can see that your end tidal CO2 tracing, instead of a nice flat top, will look like a slanted top hat. You'll have, for example, uh, an upslope, a steep upslope from the beginning to the end. You will potentially hear wheezing. If you listen to the lung exam, you will have increased expiratory time. You may see that the flow time curve, the flow doesn't come back to zero. You can have an increase in end tidal CO2 if you let them exhale as as that end tidal CO2 finally comes out from where it was trapped. And then you can have decreased tidal volumes uh, if you're on pressure control because that same pressure is going to get you less volume as the bronchospasm gets worse. So in these patients, be really conscious of the fact that they may be air trapping and developing that auto peep, and if it gets bad enough, they can even arrest, as we talked about before, from the lack of venous return. So if that happens, disconnect them from the circuit. You can give them 100% oxygen. You can increase their IDE ratio, deepen the anesthetic, especially if it's an inhaled anesthetic, because those can be bronchodilatory, and those can really help. You want to make sure that this isn't actually a problem with the ET tube, like a mucus plug in there or a kink or they're biting on it. So check. Make sure that the ET tube is patent. Make sure it's not a main stem intubation. That can also cause increased peak airway pressures. So make sure your tube's in the right place. Listen for bilateral breath sounds. If you do hear that wheezing and you do suspect bronchospasm, first remember all that is wheezing is not bronchospasm. This is also really big for oral boards. If they have wheezing, you don't want to just assume it's bronchospasm. Could it be pulmonary edema? Could they have had an MI and now they've got pulmonary edema from heart failure? Look at your monitors. Make sure that the 
EKG tracing looks good. There's no new ST elevations. But in the setting of someone at risk for bronchospasm, like a known asthmatic or COPD, and now they've got wheezing and peak airway pressures, it's a good chance it might be bronchospasm. So you can give albuterol through the circuit. You can give epinephrine. Again, these are small doses, 10 mics IV. Start low. Be wary that you're going to potentially see tachycardia and hypertension from that epinephrine. Ketamine is a bronchodilator. You can give small doses of ketamine, something like 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. You can give steroids. You can give 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone. And again, remember to be thinking about what else it could be. So pulmonary edema, anaphylaxis, make sure you rule those things out. Don't just assume it's bronchospasm. And the way to do that is checking your other monitors. If it's anaphylaxis, you're going to see hypotension. If it is pulmonary edema, you should see changes on your EKG, assuming that it was an acute MI that caused it. All right, another rare but very serious potential intraoperative emergency is an airway fire. So you know you have to be thinking about this if there is any operation and bovying electrocautery going on around your endotracheal tube. If you hear a pop or see a spark or a flame or smoke coming out of the airway, you need to think about this. If you have, you know they're operating in that area on the cords or around your tube, then you really want to make sure that you're using the lowest possible FiO2. Room air would be great, but if for some reason they, the patient can't tolerate room air, then you use a little bit more oxygen, but the lower the oxygen, the safer you are. If you do get a fire, the first thing you want to do is get that tube out. Some people will tell you turn off your flows first because essentially with your oxygen flowing through that tube, it's like a blowtorch going down into the patient. But the fastest way, rather than turning around and turning off your flows, to get that blowtorch effect done with is to pull that tube out. So you can disconnect it and pull it out, or you can just pull it out, but get that tube out of the patient. If it was a patient who was an incredibly difficult intubation, you had to do an awake fiber optic intubation, you want to take that into account. But you really, you, you can't leave a, a flaming endotracheal tube in a patient, even if it was a difficult intubation. So you've got to get that thing out. So if there are any pieces of the endotracheal tube that have ended up in the airway, if it's disintegrated in there, then you can put a fiber optic in there and try to pull out those pieces, pour saline into the patient's airway to try to put out any lingering fire, and then try to do a bronch and, as I said, get those things out if there's little bits of pieces and debris uh, that are left in there. Remember that the patient may have severe airway swelling after the burn, so once the fire is definitely out, you want to think about whether they need to be reintubated quickly before they develop that airway swelling, and then you can't reintubate them. And either way, you want to remember that if you've pulled that tube out, you're not ventilating them. So as soon as things, as soon as the fire is definitely out, you need to one way or the other make sure they're being ventilated. I also didn't mention before that in addition to oxygen, nitrous is highly flammable. So you want to make sure if you had any nitrous going on uh, in the case when they start to operate around your tube or in the airway, you want to turn nitrous off. So low FiO2, as close to room air as possible, and no nitrous for those cases. If it's a case where they're using a laser, you can try to use a laser tube if you have them, uh, which you fill the cuff with that methylene blue tinted saline and make sure that you talk to the surgeon and before they laser in there they put some wet gauze around it if they can and they confirm with you double check that you're not using nitrous and that you're not using high fio2s all right obviously a massive hemorrhage is another uh, major crisis in the operating room but this is the kind of stuff that we deal with all the time and so we're not gonna spend a huge amount of time on it 
Uh, plus, I just did a podcast, which you can listen to a few episodes ago with Stephen Freiberg, where we talked about massive transfusion protocol and resuscitation and trauma. And we talked a lot about a lot about a lot of this on that episode. But just a few things. Obviously, make sure that if there's risk of blood loss in a case, you've typed and screened the patient and there's blood available. If it was not expected and you didn't do that, then get that blood, send that type and screen right away. Even if you're going to have to use uncross-matched blood because it's an emergency, still get the type and screen sent so that you can get cross-matched blood ready as soon as possible. If you didn't put an A-line in and the patient is hemorrhaging, if you have time and you have someone to help, get that A-line in. Get a rapid transfuser, either a level one or a Belmont. Make sure that you know that in massive uh, hemorrhage, you want to be trying to replace blood in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. So that's one unit of FFP for one unit of PRBCs. And then every time you give six PRBCs slash FFPs, you're going to give one six-pack or one apheresis unit of platelets, which gives you a one-to-one-to-one ratio since that platelet counts as six. So remember, when you give a PRBC, you should expect your hemoglobin to go up by one. When you give a unit of platelets, it should go up by about 50,000. FFP, you're going to watch your INR or your TAG and see if you need more. Cryo, cryoprecipitate, you want to give if your fibrinogen is less than about 80 to 100 and you're bleeding. And you should think that about 10 units of cryo, which is 10 units of cryo is usually one one pack, uh, will raise your fibrinogen about 50 super important is to communicate with the surgeons. Often they can pack and wait, but they'll only do that if they really know how how much it's affecting the patient. If the blood loss is causing massive hypotension and you're really worried and you don't tell them, they may not know to pack and stop and let you catch up. So you have to communicate with the surgeons. All right, let's go over a couple of broad differentials. So hypotension in the OR. So if it's severe, again, call for help, call for the code cart, let the surgical team know. You want to be thinking about what to do right away. So if if you notice severe hypotension, first of all, feel for a pulse and check your monitors. If there's no pulse and you've got a a flat line on the A line or on your EKG, now you're in a code. So you want to check your monitors. If it's hypotension but the SAT's fine, the EKG's fine, and and you have a pulse, then you're not in, in a code situation yet. You want to think about what else could be going on. Talk to the surgeons. Look, is there a ton of blood loss all of a sudden? If... Are they, have you not given fluid? Do you think giving some IV fluid would help? Are they fluid responsive? Look at the A-line. Does it have a lot of variation and you think they may be fluid responsive? You can give some phenylephrine or ephedrine, the most common push-dose pressors that we give, usually 100 to 200 mics of phenylephrine or 5 to 10 milligrams of ephedrine and see if that helps. If, that, if neither of those is working, you can try some epinephrine, usually 10 to 20 mics of epinephrine. Some people will say to try vasopressin one unit, two units uh, at a time. I usually go to epinephrine first. If the hypotension is severe, turn off your anesthetic agent. If it's not quite as severe, you can just turn it down. You can think about if the patient's really hypotensive and you're worried about perfusion to the brain, put them in Trendelenburg, head down. That'll auto-transfuse some blood from the legs back towards the heart and the head. If they're hypoxic, obviously, you're going to increase your FiO2 and turn up your flows. Tell the surgeon if it's severe enough that you think they might have to terminate the procedure or at least, as I said, pack and wait. Get that code card in there if it's not resolving right away. And, of course, if at any point they go pulseless, start chest compressions right away and go down the CPR pathway. And, of course, you're going to be thinking about what could be causing this. So is it hemorrhage? Have you given an anesthetic overdose? Is it a patient with too much auto peep but now they don't have venous return like we talked about before? Could it be a pneumothorax, anaphylaxis, an MI? Could it be a PE? All these things that can cause 
hypotension you want to be thinking about, an air embolus. So think about the situation, think about what might be potentially causing this and how you can treat it, how you can address it. A good way that some people like to think about this is thinking about could it be decreased preload, meaning like we talked about auto-peep, hypovolemia from hemorrhage or from just being very hypovolemic because you haven't given them enough fluid. Could they be having an arrhythmia and now they're not perfusing? Could they have IVC compression from the surgeon or from the retractor or from a tumor? Could they have an air embolism or fat or a, a PE? Could they have a pneumothorax, a pericardial tamponade? Is there something that's causing so much venodilation that they don't have venous return? So all of these things fit under that no venous return, no preload leading to hypotension or reduced preload leading to hypotension. Could it be on the other end, afterload, low afterload? Could it be that you gave too much vasodilation from your uh, anesthetics? Could they be in shock either from anaphylaxis or sepsis or a spinal shock if they had trauma to the spine? Could it be an endocrine abnormality like a patient who was on a lot of steroids and has adrenal insufficiency and now the stress of surgery, they can't respond to it, in which case you would obviously give steroids. Could it be a problem with the heart itself, decreased contractility, either from your medications, your anesthetics, because they have a bad heart in the first place? Do they have a new MI and now they have heart failure all of a sudden? Do they have valvular disease that's gotten worse? Is it from too much afterload and they can't push against it? Are they hypoxic and it's causing myocardial ischemia? And do they have local anesthetic toxicity? You've injected bupivacaine into the vein, causing the heart to not function. And then, of course, it could be a low heart rate, uh, either from excessive bradycardia, or which could have come from a variety of things like vagal stimulation, and we talked about that in the bradycardia section. Things that can help you figure out what's going on. Echo, can you get a TEE in or a TTE if not a TEE? Do you have enough IV access? Do you have an A-line? An A-line can help you also in terms of trying to figure out if the patient is volume responsive. If you think they might be adrenally insufficient, go ahead and give the steroids. Send labs. It'll help you get more information. Another broad differential to think about is if the patient's hypoxic. This hypoxemia, just like hypotension, comes up all the time on oral boards and, of course, happens in the OR in real life. So if your patient is extremely hypoxic, you're going to, again, call for help. If it's really severe, you might want to call for that code card, too, and let the surgeons know. So obviously, the first thing to think about is, am I giving enough oxygen? So turn up the flows, turn up your oxygen to 100%. Make sure to check your monitors. Are you actually ventilating the patient? Make sure that you can see on your gas analyzer, what is your FiO2? Did you accidentally turn on the, the nitrous at 70 or 80%? not 80%, but 70%, turn that down, get the nitrous off, go to 100% oxygen. If you look at your other vitals and everything else is okay, that's better. If not, if you don't have a pulse, you're going to go down the pulseless uh, algorithms that we talked about. How about end tidal CO2? If you don't see that, maybe you're not ventilating, maybe you're disconnected. You can hand ventilate. If you're worried your machine might be malfunctioning, just hook the patient up to an Ambu bag or a baby safe and ventilate. Make sure you can feel that resistance, that compliance by hand. It should feel normal. If you're worried about your O2 supply, hook them up to a tank of oxygen just to get that out of the picture too. Listen for breath sounds. You want to be able to hear bilateral breath sounds. If not, could your ET tube be right main stem? If you, have, if you hear severe bronchospasm, severe wheezing, maybe you have bronchospasm. You can think about problems with the ET tube itself, so suction out that tube. If you had a, an obstruction in the tube, you probably would have seen high peak airway pressures, another reason to look at the other monitors. 
If you listen to the lungs and you only hear breath sounds on the left, it could be a right mainstem intubation or it could be a pneumothorax. Again, you've got to think about your situation. Could this patient have a pneumothorax? Depends on what the patient's pathology is and what you did, like a central line. And then, of course, if you think it might be right mainstem, look how deep it is, pull it back a little, and that'll help you differentiate between right mainstem and a pneumothorax. Sometimes patients develop increasing atelectasis over time. If that's the case, it wouldn't be sudden. It would be a slow decrease in your saturation. And the way to deal with that is to think about doing a recruitment breath, increasing your PEEP, and see if that helps. But you have to be very careful doing a big recruitment breath if the patient's already hypotensive. If they've got the pressure to spare, you're probably okay, but keep your eye on the pressure. Other things we've already talked about, if you're worried about bronchospasm, think about giving bronchodilators, epi, increasing the depth of anesthesia and send labs to try to figure out what's really going on. You, It's possible your pulse ox is misreading. You don't want to ever assume that, but if you send an ABG and your PO2 is 150, then that SAT that was reading 60 is not going to be correct. And, of course, you always want to keep in mind, could it be an air embolus? Could it be a PE? A severe PE or air embolus that is causing hypoxia should also probably be causing hypotension. Again, an echo will help you try to see if the right heart looks like uh, it's straining from pushing against a PE. An air, you often can see, you might be able to see the air if it's an air embolus, and we'll talk about air embolus uh, as a separate thing in a minute, but you want to think about those as possibilities as well. I'm not going to go deep into malignant hyperthermia, just to say that what you're going to see if in malignant hyperthermia initially is increased end tidal CO2, often very in severe increase, up to maybe 70 or 80 very suddenly, tachycardia, tachypnea, and acidosis. Sometimes you can see masseter spasm and trismus, and you can even see sometimes a cardiac arrest due to hyperkalemia. You later, after these initial signs, get the hyperthermia, the rigidity, myoglobinuria, arrhythmias, and then things can progress to cardiac arrest. So those are the things, and if you think that in a patient who has had a triggering anesthetic, the number one thing to remember is dantrolene, dantrolene, dantrolene. Okay, so you're going to call. If you don't know how to do it or you're not sure, you can contact the Malignant Hyperthermia hotline, 1-800-MH-HYPER, and you look it up online. There's plenty of ways to get the doses, but what you're going to want to do is give 2.5 milligrams per kilogram of IV dantrolene, and then either start an infusion or keep giving it until the patient is stable. If you end up giving more or you reach a point where you've given 10 megs per kg and you haven't seen a response, you want to rethink your diagnosis because it really should respond to that dantrolene. Be aware that hyperkalemia can be a serious issue in MH, and you want to treat that because hyperkalemia can cause a cardiac arrest. So check your K, treat it, give insulin and D50 to try to shift it, and you can give calcium to stabilize the cardiac membrane. 25% 25% of these patients relapse so they need to be within 24 hours so they need to be watched for at least 24 hours in an ICU. All right, an intraoperative MI is a big problem and much harder to diagnose than in an awake patient. So what are you going to see? You need to be watching your ST segments. An acute change, obviously either ST elevation or ST depression is going to be worrisome. If you see arrhythmias, it could be a suggestion that the patient is having myocardial ischemia unexplained tachycardia, bradycardia, PACs, PVCs, you want to be thinking, could this be from ischemia? If you have an echo in and you see regional wall motion abnormalities, obviously that's a problem if they're new. Obviously, if the patient's awake, you'd see things like chest pain, but that isn't going to happen in an anesthetized patient. 
if you're worried about an MI, if it's an ST elevation MI, you suggest based on your monitor, either way, you're going to want to get a 12 lead EKG. And then if it's a STEMI, you're going to want to talk to the surgeon, can we get this patient to the cath lab? Can we get a CARDS consult and get them to the cath lab? If it's not a STEMI, you probably still want to get cardiology involved as quickly as possible and figure out the best plan going forward. In the meantime, if they're tachycardic, give them some esmolol, try to bring that heart rate down to reduce myocardial oxygen consumption. Get a code card at the bedside because they can develop arrhythmias if they haven't already. Make sure that they have, they're not, you don't want them hypotensive because they need to perfuse the heart. You don't want them hypertensive because the heart would have to work too hard. So control their blood pressure pretty tightly. If you think there's any pain, give narcotics. If you, uh, if they're not hypotensive, you can give nitroglycerin. You can talk to the surgeon about whether you can give a PR aspirin or if they have an OG or an NG tube, give aspirin down that as long as the surgeon feels like it's okay from a bleeding standpoint. If they're hemodynamically unstable, you need to either think about getting to the cath lab or calling cardiac surgery to think about putting in a balloon pump to try to get perfusion to that heart that is actively ischemic. You only want to turn up the oxygen here if they're hypoxic. You don't want to make them hyperoxic. It's actually worse for the MI. All right, we've already talked about pneumothorax as part of the differential for hypotension. If you see increased peak airway pressures, often tachycardia, hypotension, hypoxia, you have asymmetric breath sounds or you don't hear any breath sounds on one side. In theory, you might have hyperresonance of the chest to percussion. You can see tracheal deviation, but that's often a late sign. Increased JVD, increased CVP if you're measuring it. You want to really think hard about pneumothorax. Make sure it's not a right mainstem intubation. Look at your tube. Make sure you pull it back if it looks like it might be deep. But again, in a patient, you're worried about this. If you have these signs, you want to just go ahead and treat, meaning needle thoracostomy. You don't want to wait. Uh, for a chest x-ray if the patient's unstable. If they're stable and you're worried about this, then obviously you have time, you can get a chest x-ray. A needle thoracostomy is done by taking a, preferably a 14 or 16 gauge needle at the midclavicular line in the second intercostal space on the affected side and placing it there and hopefully hearing a whoosh of air and seeing resolution of your symptoms. All right, and lastly, an embolus. So a PE or a venous air embolus or an amniotic fluid embolus. So what you want to be thinking about is if you see a decrease in your end tidal CO2 with hypotension, hypoxemia, often a rise in CVP if you're measuring CVP. If you have a TEE, you may see air or a bulging of the right heart as it tries to push against that increased right heart afterload. All of these things make you think about either a venous air embolus if it's air or a PE. Uh, if, if it's a pregnant patient, an amniotic fluid embolus, Really, a lot of what you can do here is just supportive care. So you're going to increase the oxygenation 100%. Uh, you want to, if, it's, if you think it's an air embolus, flood the surgical field with saline. Make sure the site is below the heart. If it's, they're operating on the head, put them head down. If you think it might be an air embolus you can try, and you have a central line, you can try aspirating, advancing it into the heart and <clears throat> aspirating it. Very hard to do that, but you can always try. Turn off any volatile anesthetic. Definitely turn off nitrous. Nitrous will make an air embolus much worse. If the blood pressure gets low enough or you lose a pulse, you're going to start CPR, chest compressions, and go down the, the pulseless pathway. To try to avoid a code, you can give some epinephrine to try to give that right heart some inotropy and help it push against that afterload that all of a sudden it has because of the embolus. You can try putting the patient, if it's an air embolus, might help to put them in the left lateral decubitus position to try to get that air out of the right ventricular outflow tract. 
let the surgeons know if things aren't looking good that you think this might be going on and they may have to stop the procedure. If it's a PE that you're worried about and it's truly catastrophic, you might need to think about giving TPA, though obviously you want to discuss that with the surgeon. But if the patient is going to die if you don't give it, then you may have to go ahead and give TPA. Or, of course, the other thing to think about is whether you can put this patient on ECMO until you deal with the embolus. Amniotic fluid embolus is a huge problem. Not a lot you can do. Support the patient and hope they make it through it. Air embolus, the one slight difference, as I said, is you might want to think about trying to aspirate it or change position to get it out of the outflow tract. And a true PE, then uh, a clot, you can think about lytics, you can think about um, whether that would help, whether that's okay, based on the fact that they're in the middle of surgery, talking with your surgeon. And then for all three, uh, in a truly unstable enough situation, if they're if they're, looks like they're not going to survive, it's a potentially reversible cause, so you can think about ECMO if that's a possibility at your hospital. All right. So those are some of the main emergencies to think about that can happen in the operating room and how to deal with them. Now, I have no illusion that you're going to memorize everything I just said. I certainly don't have it memorized. The key, as I said in the beginning, is to, one, make sure that you have thought through some of these, not because you have to memorize every little thing, but so that if it happens, you do the basics. You look at your monitors. You make sure that you haven't caused anything iatrogenically, like you have an overdose on an anesthetic. You call for help. If there's no pulse, you start CPR. You check for that pulse. And if there's no pulse, you start CPR. You want these things to be automatic, and you want to be thinking about them. A lot of times, if you're the one in it, Calling for help is going to be the most important thing because you're going to need someone else to give fresh eyes and help you figure out what might be going on. You're going to be doing two things at once, trying to treat whatever's going on acutely, but also thinking about what caused it so you can treat the underlying cause. The other thing to keep in mind is that nobody can memorize all of this stuff, so think about loading these crisis checklists on your phone so that you can access them or even just pull them up on Google in the OR if a crisis happens. Checklists are not any sign of weakness. They are a cognitive aid to help you make sure you're not forgetting anything. The Brigham checklist, they did a study where they actually uh, randomized people in a simulated situation to using the checklist or not using them in a crisis situation and found that they had a 75% improvement in adherence to key treatment algorithms when people used the checklist versus when they didn't, and they published that in the New England Journal. So checklists are really important. Keep it in mind. They're there. They're free and they can really help you in these kind of situations. All right, check out the episode on ACRAC. That's ACRAC.com, where you can see this episode and all of the others. Leave a comment. Do you use checklists? Have you ever used these? Do you have other ones that you like? Do you keep them in the OR with you on your phone? Have they ever helped you in a crisis situation? Leave a comment there so everyone can learn from it. You can also, of course, email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Also, you can join our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website at ACRAC.com. Now, please take a minute, if you have time, and if you haven't already, to go to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating about the show. It really helps others find the podcast and makes a big difference. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.